0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avit Kahl, and I talk about how you can start, run, and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called Sunk Cost Fallacy Engineering. Let's get started. While working on Permanent Link this week, I ran into the same issue twice. I had built something that was working great, only to completely scrap it for another solution a few days after. And the first time this occurred, I just finished my infrastructure for allowing custom domains to be used for permanent links. And the other time was when I'd built a serverless solution for my background URL monitoring. In each case, I had spent the whole day devising and building something really cool and also technically challenging, and then figured out just shortly after that it wouldn't be enough. And both times, it took me a lot of mental work to accept that I'd been wrong, first of all and needed to rethink my approach. Today I want to talk about the sunk cost fallacy and its particularly devious impact on bootstrap businesses. Imagine going to the cinema, paying for the expensive seats, only to watch a movie that is a total waste of your time. Do you stay or do you leave early? Even though people are in complete control of how they spend their time, many of them choose to stay and watch until the end. No matter if they leave within the first few minutes or sit through hours of subpar cinematography, they won't get their tickets reimbursed, right? So still, they stay and watch a movie that they don't like instead of actually doing something nice with that time just because they paid for it. And that's the sunk cost fallacy. This story is always the same for founders as well. We work on something for a long time, pouring all our efforts and skills into the project, and then we suddenly learn something new and it shines a new light on our work, making it less attractive as a solution to a problem. We don't want our efforts to go to waste. Even when they allowed us to learn something important in the first place, we cling to choices we made with less knowledge. And often that leads us to self-sabotaging our own efforts to build something that people need and validating our assumptions. As much as we claim to want it at all times, is often less enjoyable than what we want it to be it definitely wasn't my case this week thankfully i've become more aware of my own reaction and how i deal with new information whenever i notice myself thinking something like this shouldn't be i try to internally rephrase it to this is something that i didn't want to happen why is that Because my instinctive response to information that invalidates my prior efforts is to doubt it, right? So that's the sunk cost fallacy in action, and I experience this quite a bit. And right then, when new facts are staring you in the face, there's your chance to grow. I have to remind myself of this every single time, and I guess the awareness of me clinging to what I had built before really helps dealing with the fact that it's actually clinging right it's not staying with something sensible it's clinging to something that i want to be true but not necessarily necessarily something that is true and in both cases this week this perspective has allowed me to move forward without regretting my prior actions my custom domain integration let me just talk about my projects here for for a second because it makes sense in the context of things that actually happened uh, and I talked about this customer domain integration at length on my podcast last week and in the newsletter too. It was really exciting to build, right? It involved Let's Encrypt and a lot of cool JavaScript code. And the day after I had implemented this, I was super proud of it. I talked about it at length on Twitter and I had a really nice DM conversation with another founder who's interested in building something for that crowd that needs stuff like this. And a day or two later, we continued talking and he shared a link to tweet by the maintainer of the Let's Encrypt JavaScript library that I was using. And in the tweet, that maintainer mentioned that the version that I was using, version 2.something, would stop working on October 31st, 2020, due to a Let's Encrypt API change. So I looked at the calendar, and it was October 29th, two days before that date. And after a minute of frantic facepalming, I guess, it, it just took a deep breath and explored alternatives. My Twitter friend eventually recommended a different solution, which I spent a day implementing, and that one turned out to be much faster, more reliable, and much easier to maintain. And here's the thing, if I hadn't built a JavaScript-based solution in the first place, I would have never talked about it, and never learned of a better way. What looked like a sunk cost was an investment, and I think it often is. Let me talk about the second time this happened. My serverless monitoring infrastructure was also not long for this world. Within a day, I learned how to build and deploy a little pinging script into 14 different AWS Lambda regions. It was really interesting. And I, I need this kind of geodiversity for my monitoring scripts because some websites like Amazon and YouTube, they actively fight scrapers or anything that they think could be scrapers, even when they're just issuing like a HTTP head request to see if the pages respond to any kind of request. That's all I need, right? I don't need the content, I just need the presence. And I thought that by using the AWS Lambda regions, I could reliably circumvent those bans and blocks that Amazon and YouTube put on scrapers and bots. Well, it turns out that was not the case. Just a few hours after pushing the new serverless monitoring service to production, Amazon started blocking those endpoints as well. Just like it had blocked my one endpoint, my my server before. So with my grand plan foiled, I looked at alternatives again. And just like with the custom domains, a Twitter conversation with a fellow German developer helped me out. I found an affordable and reliable scraping API that leveraged a global network of servers and IPs, avoiding blocks and captures, right? Just by cycling IPs and having um, what I think is like a headless Chrome do the requests. So, you know, I don't really know how they work, but they circumvent these kinds of blocks. And I implemented that for the offending URLs only at first because I was still kind of proud of my serverless solution. But when my serverless functions turned out to be significantly slower and less reliable, even for the service that didn't block them, I moved over to the API completely. So what did I get out of this? Right? I spent two days effectively building something that I had to completely scrap. Well, I got a new technology out of it and a new dependency, which in many ways is a hit or miss kind of situation. But most importantly, and I think that outweighs it completely, I found better solutions, better solutions to problems that are at the core of the service that I'm building, permanent Link. My monitoring is now incredibly stable and geo-distributed and not easily detected as automated. And my custom domains are redirected super fast, faster than before, and more reliably. And honestly, I feel good about this. The things that felt like wasted effort at the time were just steps towards something bigger. And once I got past my pride in figuring things out myself, using other solutions led to superior results. And I think there's an entrepreneurial lesson in this too. Fred Destin recently said on Twitter that, I quote, every startup is a portfolio of one, end quote. For me, that means that I am the CEO of Permanent Link, as well as the CTO and the lead developer and everybody, right? And even more importantly, I'm the only shareholder of the business. And it was painful to see both my custom domain and monitoring systems being invalidated, but that pain was only felt by the CTO. For the CEO and the owner of the business, there was not a setback in there, right? It was just something that couldn't have come fast enough. It wasn't necessarily learning. So when you run into a technical sunk cost fallacy situation yourself in the future, try envisioning it as a lesson that you couldn't have learned otherwise, right? Try to perceive it as something that moves your business forward. And my math teacher in high school quoted the saying, whenever we ran into a dead end with a proof or a theorem, Uh, it's a German saying, it's vorwärts, kameraden, wir müssen zurück, translates into onwards, comrades, we've got to head back. So sometimes taking a step backwards will allow you to leap so much further. So that's the um, main problem I ran into this week, the the thing that I found most interesting. Let me just uh, talk about the project and where I'm at at this moment. Um, I did something this week that I really needed to happen I started dog fooding my product. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it's a term that comes from a TV advertisement in the 70s where a dog food producer claimed that he was feeding his product to his own dogs. I guess in terms of software as a service, that means that I'm using Permanent Link for my own book, Zero to Sold. Right? I'm using my own product in my own product. And this week I started re-adding the links to the book that I had previously taken out because they weren't stable enough. And I used Permanent Link for every single one of them. The first book that will be powered by my SaaS will be my own book. So that shouldn't be too surprising since I built a tool f- mostly for myself. Initially, I'm customer number one for my author book link service because I'm an author who needs stable links with analytics and everything in the book, right? So I just jumped right in and started adding. And within two or three links, I had to take a break and really reflect on my user interface choices because I had noticed within just a few minutes of using my product that there were a number of pretty significant roadblocks. The input field for my link adding forms were in the wrong order. I had to reorder them at some point. I had to manually type a URL safe slug, like a couple of letters that you could put into a link, into a um, URL for each link that I wanted to have in the book after pasting in the link. That should be automated, right? And even... Um, As a very technical person, I struggled to create such a text fragment. How would my not-so-technical customers, like authors who just want to write about their specific domains and not deal with HTTP-compatible text, how would they deal with that? And worst of all, after having added a link to the system, the newly created permanent link was hidden somewhere in the UI. I needed to make that immediately copy and pasteable to fit into the workflow of an author who creates a link and wants to put it into the book right away. And I built those things while I continued to add links. And after a few hours and a few dozen links, I had a pretty solid user experience around creating links. This would never have happened if I hadn't watched my customer, which is myself, use my product. And thankfully, this is something you don't need to be your own customer for. Of course, it's great to truly feel the pain points of your solution, but in many businesses, you're not necessarily capable of doing this yourself but you can always ask your customers. When Danielle and I ran Feedback Panda, we scheduled calls with a few select customers with different operating systems and browsers just to see how they dealt with a new feature that we were implementing. We asked them to show us how they accomplished a particular task. We just recorded these calls. We watched them do it. Just seeing a mouse cursor zooming around the screen in irritation will give you a lot of insight into stuff like where people expect to find things and where they're not, right? You will see how quickly they solve their problems and which route they take through your application. And honestly, it sometimes just takes a minute of watching one of your users to destroy years of assumptions that you've created in your mind. Reality is often surprising. It's often also very funny to just watch your users use your product in ways that you've never expected. But it's always instructive. And just schedule time for this. Ask people to do what they naturally do. Don't tell them how to do it. Just give them a task to accomplish. Do this a few times a year for the more core parts of your application and act on what you learn from those interactions. Make your interface easier, make it clearer and more usable because this too is validation, right? It's continuous validation of your product directly from engaging with your users. I'm still working on my product, obviously, but I'm also still working on my pricing for permanent link. I had intended to actually work through this this week But the technical surprises just kept me from devoting too much time to this. I'm still debating if there is a need for a freemium tier. And I think I have an idea how it could work. This is a result of a conversation that I had with Danielle over dinner this week. She's not a fan of freemium. And I don't think I'm either, that much at least. But since what I'm doing is just HTTP redirections, and that doesn't really cost too much, doing this with proper limits wouldn't hurt the business even if there was a free tier with a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand customers. I was thinking that maybe I can use this actually as a marketing opportunity by making all free redirects delayed, right? Um, paying users get the immediate HTTP redirect, right? You click on a link and it immediately redirects you somewhere. But for a free user, you would click a link, then a single, a simple like page pops up saying that you will be redirected in five seconds and that this is brought to you by permanent link. Pretty much, right? Paying users would get the immediate redirect and people who are on the freemium plan get this kind of in-between page where I can um, just show my brand. And this would allow me to serve people who want to check it out to see if it works and how, and also reach more writers and content creators at the same time. Because if I target writers that also write books for other writers... Right? With some kind of marketing, I could reach people to use um, who would be interested in using my product as well. So it turns out that pricing is much more than a few numbers. But more on that, next week, I'll go right back to work right now. So thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder podcast. You can find me on Twitter at avidkahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-E-H-L. And you can check out the blog at theboosterfounder.com. You can find my book, Zero to Sold, at zerotosoldbook.com. If you have any questions about this episode, please reach out on Twitter or send an email to arvid at If you want to support me and the Bootstrap Founder podcast, please leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com founder. It'll help other founders or founders-to-be to find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, or selling their bootstrip businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.